Hi there, Philippe Tran here from the Center for Resuscitation Science for the TTN podcast. Today, I'm actually replacing Benabella, who is representing us at ISEM in Korea, actually presenting on post-arrest care. So today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Ramani Balu. Ram is an assistant professor of neurology at the Division of Neurocritical Care here at the University of Pennsylvania. And Ram is an expert in all things post-arrest care in regards to neurocritical care management. So Ram, I want to start by asking you what I think is the fundamental question here that we should start off with. Why to monitor the brain in survivors of cardiac arrest in the first place? So I think that's a really good place to start in terms of, you know, trying to answer that fundamental question of why monitor the function of the brain and survivors of cardiac arrest. And from my perspective, I think there is, there are a few reasons why it's important to monitor brain function. From a foundational level, patients who survive cardiac arrest have had a sudden drop in cardiac output which leads to a sudden and prolonged drop in cerebral blood flow. And that causes anoxic and hypoxic ischemic brain injury. And for those individuals that survive cardiac arrest that are unresponsive after their resuscitation, the degree of brain injury is the single most important predictor of their long-term outcome. And so it's really important to be thinking about brain function and how the brain works when we're taking care of patients in the intensive care unit. Now, specifically, I think there are two really important reasons to monitor brain function after cardiac arrest. The first is that if we get a sense of what the brain is doing and how the brain is working after cardiac arrest, we can provide some information on prognosis and the uh, you know, ability of a patient to have a meaningful neurologic recovery. The other important issue, which I think maybe sometimes gets ignored, is that the injury to the brain that occurs after cardiac arrest doesn't stop after you get um, uh, return of spontaneous circulation or ROSC, right? It actually continues. So um, the brain injury after cardiac arrest can continue for hours to days afterwards. And so if we have a way of monitoring brain function, we may be able to identify physiological processes that can lead to what would be termed secondary brain injury, the things that make the brain injury worse. And if we can potentially identify those, some of those might be modifiable while the patient is in the ICU and might actually allow us to deliver care that can improve patient's function. So I think those are really the two big reasons in my mind why it's important to monitor brain function after cardiac arrest. Yeah, so prognostication, trying to identify secondary injury. And then a third one, which, uh, you know, I think is also important is that um, by identifying how the brain is working, we might be able to target our level of sedation. So if you have a patient who's comatose, they don't need as much sedation as a patient who's starting to wake up. And so um, it's an important issue because if we provide too much sedation for patients, we can actually delay our ability to actually provide neuroprognostication. And so those are the, I think, the reasons to, to think about monitoring the brain. All right. So why don't we move on now to review what are those available strategies to monitor patients in this post-arrest phase? And I want to start by asking you specifically about it. What is the value of the clinical examination and the neurological assessment of these patients? We've all been taught to assess uh, pupillary reflexes, corneal reflexes, assess brainstorm reflexes in these patients. And we know from good data at this point that there are some 
some issues with uh, those uh, elements of the physical exam and unfortunately sometimes decisions are made too early based on this uh, clinical uh, science in or the lack of. So why don't you um, explain to the audience what is the value of physical examination of this patient? Yeah, so I think, you know, traditionally in a patient with brain injury, we use the clinical neurologic exam as our most reliable monitor. And so most doctors, most physicians, healthcare providers would say that if we can see evidence of severe brain injury, if someone has, uh, you know, a lack of brainstem reflexes or signs that they've had diffuse brain injury, that that suggests that they may not have a good capacity for recovery. Unfortunately, in the post-arrest patient, in the immediate post-arrest period, most of those usual signs of poor brain function are not predictive of whether or not someone is going to have a good prognosis or a bad prognosis. And there are two real reasons for that. One is that um, the brain is, in a sense, stunned after that prolonged period of a lack of cerebral blood flow. And so you may see uh, someone with a lack of brainstem reflexes, unreactive pupils, and an unresponsive motor exam that uh, in three days later may actually have uh, a, a resumption of those primitive brainstem reflexes and a much more reassuring exam. Uh, I think in the same light, um, those uh, usual metrics of brain function can start changing in patients that undergo targeted temperature management or therapeutic hypothermia for two reasons. One is that cooling the core body temperature down may artificially disrupt these normal brainstem reflexes. And also the burden of sedative medication that we have to give will obscure those normal kind of brainstem reflexes that we see. And so for all of those reasons, the clinical exam early on is very unreliable. It's a very unreliable predictor of the degree of sustained brain injury and whether or not patients have the ability to make any kind of recovery. I think that's a super important point that really uh, impacts practice. And just to make it even more clear, what signs, what actual physical exam are you considering? Uh, pupillary reflex, corneal reflexes? Yeah, so I think there are multiple ways of kind of quantifying the neurologic exam. Um, uh, at the most basic, what I'm talking about are uh, the reflexes that give us a sense of what brainstem function is. So that would include the pupillary light response. Uh, so you shine, a you shine a light in someone's eyes and you look to see that their pupils constrict. Um, there are other brainstem responses that we can assess, like you said, the corneal response. So you put some, um, you know, a piece of cloth or something uh, at the patient's cornea and they should blink, um, a cough or a gag. Um, all of these things are primitive brainstem reflexes. Um, in addition to that, looking for kind of motor function. So if you call out the patient's name, do they respond? And at a more primitive level, if you pinch the patient or give some type of noxious stimulation, do they respond? And we can quantify these things by a variety of different scales, but the one that's most used in the intensive care unit is the Glasgow Coma Scale score. So that's a 15-point scale that basically gives you points for uh, eye-opening, for verbal response, and for motor response. And so you basically get a certain number of points if you open your eyes spontaneously, you get a certain number of points if you're able to say things, and you get a certain number of points if you're able to do different types of motor tasks. So if you can 
actually follow a command with a motor response that gives you the highest uh, score. But if you have uh, things like extensor posturing or flexor posturing, that will give you lower responses. And there are problems with the Glasgow Coma Scale because in intubated patients, you can't really get a, vo a verbal score. And because it has so many points, there can be variability across investigators. But it's really become, I think, the standard metric by which uh, in the intensive care unit, you monitor the neurologic function of severely brain injured patients. And it allows for repeated measurements and the ability to look at improvement and also to, to have multiple different people do the same kind of exam. So we've covered the clinical examination and what we have available in terms of clinical tools. And we know that, I think, in, 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 in general, it would be fair to say that it's far from perfect, right, and far from accurate. And probably it would be also fair to say that in 2019, we should not be making absolute decisions uh, just based on physical examination, right, on any of these um, tools of assessment in the first hours of uh, post-ROSC. Post Is that a fair statement? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, in the early post-arrest period, the clinical exam is an unreliable indicator of someone's brain function and uh, really shouldn't be used to guide treatment decisions uh, and is not a very effective monitor of brain function. Or to withdraw care, right? We see this Absolutely. Often, right? So making uh, decisions about, you know, we're going to stop this patient's resuscitation like here, we're going to withdraw care, we're going to... Um, not admit the patient to the ICU because we're seeing the absolutely and I you know I have I had heard Ben on a prior podcast bring up the point that he's seen patients who've had unreactive pupils on admission that have made good neurologic recoveries and I would absolutely second that that you know the absence of brainstem reflexes in the immediate post arrest period is at this point I would say meaningless in terms of someone's neurologic prognosis and so we have to use other tools to kind of monitor brain function and also wait for some time until we can be sure of, of what the degree of someone's brain injury is. All right. So it's, I think, pretty clear that clinical examination is, is limited. Of course, we should include it, um, but it's, it's limited in terms of what we can do with it. So let's move on to what else we have available. So there are a few different technologies. Can you comment on what are the most important technologies and devices that are available in this case? Yeah. Absolutely. So I would say that the most widely used technique or technology to monitor brain function is electroencephalography or EEG. So um, with EEG, you place electrodes on the surface of the scalp in a defined positions and you can continuously monitor brain function in that way. Um, in the older era, we usually would get an EEG for a defined period of time, say for 30 minutes, and then interpret that data. But now more and more, um, at more and more centers, people are using continuous EEG. That is, you hook someone up to an EEG monitor and you keep recording that EEG for 24, 48 hours or even more. And that EEG gets reviewed periodically by someone who can look to see if there are the presence of, say, seizures, which can occur after cardiac arrest, and also if there are the presence of different types of electric physiological patterns that might give you some sense of the degree of brain injury. So for instance, there are some patterns that can be associated with very severe brain injury. One is um, uh, 
uh, complete suppression. So normally on an EEG, you see a lot of squiggles, a lot of um, uh, you know fluctuations in the brainwave pattern. If you see that that brainwave pattern is completely suppressed, that suggests that there might be severe brain injury. Another pattern that can be associated with severe brain injury is the development of generalized epileptiform discharges uh, and also um, the lack of reactivity to external stimuli. So if you get pinched or if you are asleep and get woken up, there will be a change in your EEG pattern. Now in a patient who's had a cardiac arrest, if you give a noxious stimulus and you see no change in the EEG pattern, that suggests that that sensory information is not getting up into the brain appropriately. And so that's a sign that there can be um, severe brain damage. So I would say that the EEG is used in that way, so both to identify electrophysiological patterns that might be suggestive of severe brain injury, and also to monitor for seizures, because seizures are a treatable thing that we think when patients have seizures, it puts an added metabolic stress on the brain that might lead to secondary brain injury. Is the presence of seizures in this phase accorded with outcomes or have any um, implication in terms of uh, prognosis of these patients? Yes, in that I will say that in studies that have looked at all of these things, you know, the presence of different types of electrophysiological patterns, the presence of seizures, um, those things do associate with poor outcome. But when talking about outcome, I want to bring up a very important concept, which is called the self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and so what that is, is that um, it's often the case that we may get a test that shows some pattern that in our minds as physicians or healthcare providers suggests that a patient is going to do poorly. So this might not be just EEG, but for instance, the lack of a pupillary response. And then as a physician, I may go to the family and say, you know what, your loved one has a really terrible EEG. And I know from previous studies that everyone with that EEG pattern dies. Well, the reason why everyone with that EEG pattern dies is because care is withdrawn. And so the presence of that abnormal or malignant pattern reinforces the poor outcome because we, as physicians, artificially reinforce that. So I think it's a, it's a very difficult thing to go into the situation saying, oh, well, you know, we see studies that say that this particular EEG pattern or other exam feature carries with it, you know, a 100% uh, you know, probability of poor outcome. All of those studies should be taken with some amount of grain of salt because they all are susceptible to the self-fulfilling prophecy. The way that I view it is that if you see multiple kind of uh, abnormal patterns that all are concordant and suggest severe brain injury. That's important to tell a family, um, but it's really hard to put hard and fast numbers on them because every study is really, uh, you know, uh, plagued by that self-fulfilling prophecy issue. Um, and that, that doesn't go just for EEG, but for some of the other kind of monitoring techniques that we may talk about. So let's jump into those other uh, monitoring techniques yeah. that we have available, right? We have covered EEG. Uh, we can do it continuous or intermittently. How about nurse 
Is that something that um, we should be using? Is that something that can add value in this phase? So um, NEAR stands for Near Infrared Spectroscopy. And so it's a technology that's similar to like pulse oximetry. So there are commercial NEARS monitors that allow you to do cerebral oximetry. And uh, the thinking is, is that you can identify periods of hypoxia uh, in the brain. And there have been some studies that have looked both intra-arrest and also post-arrest at whether or not NEARS has some prognostic significance. And I would say that that literature is promising, but it's a little too soon to be adopted widely. So it's really should be thought of more as a research tool than something that is, um, uh, you know, used widely. Uh, the other electrophysiological monitoring technique that can be used is something called evoked potentials, um, or specifically somatosensory evoked potentials. So that's a test where um, uh, you can shock one of the sensory nerves and then record with an electrode the activity in the brain. And so you do this over and over again about 2,000 times, and then that little response that you wouldn't really see on a single trial, if you average all of those trials, you can see an evoked potential response from that sensory stimulation. And if you see um, no response after you, you stimulate the median nerve, um, but you see responses at other levels up the spinal cord and at the brainstem, then that suggests that there is significant damage to the cerebral cortices. And so that has been studied as a brain monitoring or at least a, a marker of brain physiology that may have some relevance to providing neuronal pro or, or uh, to, to providing uh, neurological prognostication. How about? Other techniques that are actually measuring perfusion, are we able to somehow assess brain perfusion post-arrest and is that something that could become the standard eventually? You know, I think it would be great if we had the ability to measure cerebral blood flow in a way that was non-invasive and continuous. Unfortunately, we are not at the, that place yet. So there are some techniques based on near-infrared spectroscopy that might be able to measure changes in cerebral blood flow. None of them are really have reached, uh, you know, um, clinical utility, right? So they're not, not yet ready for prime time. EEG in other contexts can give you an estimate of the uh, adequacy of cerebral perfusion. So we actually use EEG in other patients with brain injury to identify if there's a drop in cerebral perfusion. Um, but in the setting of someone with severe bilateral cortical injury, those markers on EEG that might be sensitive to changes in blood flow are not really useful. And so um, while it would be outstanding to have that type of monitor, we don't have it yet. And so that's why we're actually you know, relegated to doing what in my mind are kind of like very uh, you know, antiquated things like just targeting a mean arterial pressure, um, which we have no idea if that's providing the right amount of blood flow or not. Having no idea of what was actually happening in the brain, right? That's right. So to wrap this up, how do we put this together? So can you tell me from a practical standpoint how are you doing this? How are you integrating these tools? And um, sort of what is the, the current approach? Yeah. So I think, you know, although there are a lot of really sophisticated technologies for monitoring brain function, 
Many of those are not needed necessarily to deliver effective care to the post-arrest patient. So um, in the acute period, while we're always going to be examining our patients, we need to just understand that the clinical examination in the early post-arrest period during the time when we're delivering TTM is unreliable um, and shouldn't really be used until I would say probably at least 72 hours after the arrest. But ideally at a time when we know that there's no longer any confounding effect of sedation. Um, in terms of EEG monitoring, uh, there have been studies that have looked at whether or not um, daily spot EEGs can provide information um, that might help with care. And a daily EEG can provide a lot of information if you do it over the course of time um, where you might be able to see some of these patterns that are associated with severe brain injury um, that can be just as good as continuous EEG. I think if there was a time period during that time where you did a daily spot EEG and you saw the presence of seizures, or if the patient started to have clinical convulsions or seizures, um, it would be important to think about either starting continuous EEG monitoring, or if you're at a place that doesn't have that ability, to think about transferring the patient to a facility that has that ability. Because um, in order to treat non-convulsive seizures effectively, you really need to monitor them continuously. But as long as those are not there, I think um, just doing good ICU care, doing your targeted temperature management, um, knowing that there needs to be a certain amount of time before you really can think about doing neuroprognostication. Um, and then, you know, if you have an EEG, uh, the capability of getting EEGs to, to do that in a serial fashion is probably the way to go. And um, most patients will benefit and will, will be getting effective and appropriate care with those uh, technologies. So we've stated the importance and the value of um, EEG. We're lucky here at the University of Pennsylvania that we have actually access to continuous EEG and we can actually call for it right after uh, we get ROSC if we wanted in that immediate post-resuscitation phase before the patient even gets to the ICU. But I know that in a lot of places that's not a, a possibility. Are there any technologies available at this point that can sort of simplify this assessment at the point of care? Is this something that, that we can access to? Yeah, I think there there are, and and maybe also other things in the pipeline. I would say even here at Penn, it can be uh, uh, an issue to get EEG in a timely fashion. I mean, um, EEG techs are uh, a precious resource, and it's it sometimes can be difficult in the middle of the night to to get these things done. And so there are some technologies based on EEG, and I'll say by way of disclaimer, I have no stake in any any of these companies. Um, uh, I only know about them from the literature. Uh, so there is a company um, that is has made a EEG machine that basically um, can be applied in a quick fashion without the need of a tech. Uh, that company's name is Cerebell. Uh, and so you can basically quickly, an ER nurse or a physician could put this EEG monitor on, and there are some technologies in the pipeline and also available where you might be able to identify seizures based on um, 
the sound uh, that the, those electrical impulses make through a speaker, or that information, once you start recording, can be beamed over the cloud to a remote kind of um, viewing area where a, a physician trained in interpreting EEG could look at that EEG. And so there are some options, uh, you know, if you don't have uh, the full kind of technology to deploy EEG, um, maybe to be able to do that with limited resources. So I think this is a good point to finish this. I want to thank you for joining me, and um, it will be until the next one. Thank you very much, Ron. Thanks very much, Felipe. It was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm.